0: Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. this broadcast, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Mohan Gandhetti, Professor of Surgery, Pediatrics, and Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the Director of Pediatric Urology at University of Chicago in Chicago, Illinois. Today, we will discuss what is the status of minimally invasive surgery in pediatric urology. Dr. Gandhetti, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. It's uh, truly a pleasure and uh, quite an honor to speak with you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Schwartz. And uh, thank you, General of Endorology. This is fantastic educational endeavor. And we can reach out to you know, many of our colleagues around the world through this
0: podcast. I, I guess the first uh, um, topic I'd like you to discuss, if you don't mind, is uh, what's the current breakdown and the current status of MIS in uh pediatric urology as it relates to ESWL, ureteroscopy, percutaneous surgery, and then open surgery for stone disease. Obviously the last one you can just touch on briefly, there's probably not a huge role, but the first three minimally invasive options for stone disease, what, how do you see it fitting into your practice today?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's a very good question as you know that the pediatric stone incidence is increasing and we don't know, it could be multiple factors. Uh, it could be diet, uh, nutrition, some metabolic abnormality. And at the same time, I think uh, our detection rate has increased, possibly because of, you know, patients coming to the emergency room and, you know, bringing it to the attention. Now, if you ask, you know, what's the role of, you know, minimal invasive surgery, and there's a huge amount of minimal invasive surgery, which is very helpful for children. But before we go on to the nuances of individual applications of technology, some things we need to consider in pediatric patients. One is we have to think about the instrumentation sizes regarding the anatomy that children have. Second is, the number of procedures is required to clear the stones because every anesthesia has some morbid effect on children. And the last thing is we need to take into account the underlying anatomical anomalies if they have. And these are very important consideration we should think about when we want to choose you know, which modality we should use. Now, if we start with you know, a renal stone, about probably you know two centimeter or so, what we will think about is how I can get this stone cleared out in one session, one anesthesia, and much less morbidity to the patient. Now PCNL has played an enormous role in this situation, and as you all knowing that mini PCNL is slowly getting popularized so that we can have less morbidity to the kidney and kidney injury. So I think, you know, PCNL will play a big role, especially in the large stones and depending on the stone density as well. You know, on the CT scan, when we see the household units and the anatomy, where it is located, you know, is it located in lower calyx? Is it located in the pelvis? So. A um, very suitable position, good anatomy, solid hard stone will be a very amenable to PCNL. Now, if we move on about the mini perk, the mini perk has advantages of the less renal injury, and I will say it has a similar role like a PCNL, and you just need to be comfortable with using the technology and various surgeons across the world have done a immense contribution to this uh, mini PCNL and it has a great role in pediatric population. If we now go back to the eretroscopy and there has been a huge leap for the development of the uretroscopes, and you guys are pioneered in adult urology and have made immense progress. And what I will think about is, you know, the flexible digital uretroscopy. Because of the size, because of the availability and any stones in the lower ureter, mid ureter, even to the upper ureter, and some of the stones, even in the lower pole of the renal pelvis have been very amenable to flexible digital ureteroscopy. The one downside when we use the flexible digital urethroscopy is about the access sheath, And we need to be very cognizant about pediatric population having a you know, small urethra, the urethroversycle anatomy, and of course the urethroversycle junction. So we may not be able to use in younger population the bigger access sheath and we may have to think about when we do erectroscopy, can we just do a dusting technology so that you know we don't have to go in and out multiple times so that's the role of erectroscopy. now you may say what about uh, flexi- semi rigid erectroscopy? and as the age is increasing like you know later post-toddler, like five years, seven, eight years old, and if you have a small stone in the lower ureter, of course, you know, we can use the semi-digital urethroscope, especially the smaller sizes, and those are very amenable to the endoscopic, urethroscopic treatment. One caution needs to be made when you're doing urethroscopy is, especially in male urethra, be cognizant about when you do urethroscopy, about the how much force you put in as you get into the ureterovascular junction, so that you don't end up in a urethral strictures in the long term. So, what do you think, Dr. Schwartz, about the PCNL and ureteroscopy? So far, we discussed any comments I can get you from adult urology world, so we can learn
0: globally. Do you think? The United States, it appears we just don't see as many stones or as many stones that need true intervention as many parts of the world where stones may be more endemic in children. Uh, Are these procedures being performed mainly at programs where pediatric urologists are prevalent or are they being used in the community and frequently employed by a lot of urologists and how does it differ globally than the United States? I think you are on spot on.
1: Uh, as I mentioned, you know, even though the stone incidence is rising in Western Hemisphere, the incidence is much more abundance in Eastern part of the world. And that again, you know, because of multiple factors. And there is a huge stone to be treated in the Eastern population just because of the population itself but also the presentation is much later. I've been practiced and trained in that part of the world and very fortunate to learn and you know help some children. The stone burden is much more and it's much more difficult you know to take care of this population because instrumentation is also difficult to get in, Uh, resources are difficult to get in and you know It's an uniform resources. There are some centers where there are ample amount of infrastructure available, all the technology and it's very amenable. And if it is not available, still, you know, patients do get a treatment in other approaches. So you are right that in regards to United States and Western Hemisphere, is it possible that only the centers with pediatric neurologists are seeing this population? Yes, I think what happens is because the inherent referral practice of children coming to the pediatric urology, that's one thing. And second thing is, you know, it's very difficult to maintain the resources and infrastructure if you are not doing these cases regularly. And of course, you know, our own skills, if you are not doing it regularly, it may not be comfortable to take care of the children. And that's why we see this uh, variation in incidence and also practice patterns.
0: Yeah, I think yeah, I agree. When when you talk about hospitals wanting to allocate resources, I think it's hard to for a hospital to purchase a lot of pediatric instruments that are specific to pediatrics when you may only see a couple of these patients a year. And uh, in contradistinction to our adult population where ureteroscopy is one of the single most common procedures that urologists perform worldwide, uh, it, it's it may be difficult to approach the hospital to get those resources that might be used only once, twice, three times a year.
1: I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you.
0: All right, well, I appreciate that. I think it's a great uh, overview of, of the situation for stones and children. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and, and start talking about the laparoscopic robotic applications in the pediatric population. Uh, what? How do you uh, see the current utilization of these two modalities in the United States and again globally?
1: So, first of all, I want to just step back because I didn't answer two more questions uh, which you previously asked. One is about ESWL and second is if there is a role of open surgery. So, going back to ESWL, it does have again immense role in pediatric population and especially the renal stones in a favorable location are amenable to ESWL The spontaneous stone passage rate after ESWL in children is amazing. And there is usually not much of a need for placement of JJ stent, just because the stone expulsion is a positive favorable factor in children. And they do pass large fragments very easily without much of a problem. So ESWL has a role. Again, the downside is, you know, they have to be sedated or often they have to be under anesthesia uh, and most of the time the clearance is excellent. Now, if you ask me what are the long-term complications of ESWL, and we have seen, and most of you colleagues have shown as well that you know the contract, the scarring of the ESWL is very minimal, the hypertension risk is very minimal. So it's very safe, and of course, sometimes almost it's a first modality rather than PCNL. And if it is not amenable to ESWL, then we may jump to the PCNL. Now, the last question um, about open surgery, is there a role? And especially with the availability of minimal invasive surgery like laparoscopy and robotics, it's much rare nowadays to use the uh, open surgery until unless you you have a huge stag on calculus Patient may have underlying anomaly of the kidney, and you may want to give one stone clearance for all that stone passage instead of bringing him back to multiple surgeries. And I will say it's been many years. I myself have not done an open surgery uh, for renal stones, um, but there is a, some role, and uh, we should keep our skills up. And the uh, Eastern hemisphere has a lot of uh, stone population and burden, and where there may be a still. Good scope of open surgery. So now, uh, in regards to your question, you know where are we in regards to laparoscopy and robotics in pediatric urology? Now, if you remember, in fact, you know the pediatric laparoscopy was very really at the forefront in early nineteen seventies from pediatric general surgery, and after the initial enthusiasm and Probably just doing the you know intraabdominal test is laparoscopy. It became a little bit hard, and not until when Dr. Kleman and then Dr. Didi Gaur, who was my mentor in India, started laparoscopic nephrectomies. Around that time, I think slowly we stepped up to the intraabdominal procedures in pediatric urology mainly related to extirpative surgeries, nephrectomies, heminephrectomies, and probably early 90s and late 90s, reconstructive surgery became very evident in regards to the pyloplasties, uh, which is an index case in pediatric urology. And many authors, especially the pediatric general surgeons have done an excellent contribution and brought this reconstructive laparoscopy at the forefront. And if you see today around the world, it is at the forefront of the laparoscopy for reconstructive surgeries. Either it could be a pyloplasty, it could be a heminephrectomy, it could be erectile reconstruction. Now, what happened is the learning curve is huge. And if you think about the amount of hours, I'm sure, you know, you have spent, myself have spent, you know, we were in the lab, you know, day and night. We never talked about, you know, going back home uh, because, you know, we wanted to learn. And that amount of time is not available with our next generation training just because of, you know, it's a different, it's a different scenario. And, uh, So what happens is, and also the number of uh, patients coming to a centers may be decreased just because there are so many people around the world, around the centers, around the cities. So decreasing the birth population, decreasing the number of patients. I think the reconstructive surgery to learn with a laparoscopy has become very difficult. And that's why the Robotic laparoscopic approach has really bridged that defect to decrease the learning curve and help to get on to do these reconstructive surgeries in pediatric population at a quicker learning curve and going the efficiency and proficiency, and that's how we are here with the robotic laparoscopic approach
0: now. Okay, and. Are most people in the United States performing pyeloplasties, re-implants, laparoscopically or robotically?
1: In the United States, we think about current, you know, based on the literature and based on, you know, communication and experience with other centers. I think pyeloplasty remains an index case, which is taken care with a robotic approach. I will say, maybe few hands-on people know or published that they are still doing laparoscopic approach. And it could be just because of some uh, probably reasons, uh, but I think more than 90 to 95% of our phyloplasty in pediatric population is now performed with the robotic approach. Now, in regards to the ureteric reimplantation implantation uh, this has been a subject of a biggest controversy in pediatric population, and as you all are aware, first of all, you know the reflux disease has taken a huge swing in the management. First of all, the detection has been decreased with the newer guidelines, and even if the detection has been decreased, whatever number of patients we are seeing now, we have been treating them with an expectant management the surgical approach has been very minimal just because we know the natural history now. So the number of patients coming to surgical approach are very minimal. And now if you think about how to take care of them, you know, conventional open is still practiced in many places. Uh, Endoscopic is still very prevalent, but the robotic approach is evolving. And, we started about 12 years ago, the robotic reimplantation, and it took a huge learning curve. And as a collaborative effort with the other centers in North America, we have evolved and came to almost to a plateau of now learning curve and giving the good outcomes and technique being standardized and modified. I think we will see now the more and more application in other centers around the world with the robotic electric implantation after this initial glitch and the learning curve and some technical nuances.
0: All right, well, fantastic. Well, I, though, I guess I'd like to just close with a, a, a relatively simple question. Um, I'm sure you could devote a, another hour to this topic, but <laughs> what what... Um, What do you see in the future of minimally invasive surgery for children? Uh, Has the single port caught on? Is there actually use for a single port since the incisions are already relatively small? Are there any other robotic systems? Are there, uh, you already talked about treating a lot of these diseases expectantly, medically, um, behaviorally. Uh, What what do you see coming down the road? What can we expect in five to 10 years for pediatric uh, urology cases minimally invasive surgery?
1: So I always believe that, you know, future is bright and future is always going to bring something new, something uh, helpful, something uh, very appealing. And it is just because of the passionate people uh, in the medicine who are contributing to development. It is advancing, you know, if you think about robotic approach now, even the lower track reconstruction like cystoplastic catheterizable channels are being performed And the newer systems, what we want is the miniaturization of instrumentation because we've been adapting to what we have at the probably at the inferior standards, just because you know, we could use a three millimeter instruments, Uh, we could use a smaller arms. And I think with the number of manufacturers around the world putting uh, Efforts. If we have a smaller instrumentations and smaller arms, I think there is a huge scope. That's one thing. Second thing is the cost, you know, means cost plays a huge role, and that's where you know it's important to look at infrastructure resources. If the cost can be reduced, and it may happen, you know, with number of people using it, how the invention follows the cost factor and i don't know about the single port yet because if we are making a big incision to put a port i think we will have a huge criticism from our colleagues that in that same incision you know we could do open surgery because you know if you are thinking about an infant who is probably you know like 20 inches tall and if we are making a 3 inch incision that 3 inch incision could be you know doing open piloplasty. so i think I don't want to dismiss it. I think we need to work on it to see how we can fit that to pediatric population. So I think you know the future is bright and uh, we will look for more refinements in the technology and instrumentation and we could help this spatial population uh, with the miniaturizing instrumentation, minimal morbidity and the good outcomes.
0: Fantastic. Dr. Gundetti. Uh, we really appreciate your insight and comments on uh, minimally invasive surgery for pediatric urology. Uh, keep up the good work up there. I, I know you and your department, uh, I know uh, most of the folks up there very well, and, and they do a very, very nice job. Uh, thank you. Try to be safe in the environment, and uh, we appreciate your time very much this morning.
1: Thank you, indeed, Dr. Schwartz uh, General of Endurology. And of course, you know, I want to say thank you to my team, at the University of Chicago, friends and colleagues and family around the world. Thank you. Have a good
0: day. And as always, I would like to give great thanks to the Richard Wolf Corporation for helping sponsor this series, the Journal of Endourology, and the Endourological Society who are sponsoring these programs. It is with great appreciation that we uh, thank you for the support and the ability to provide these podcasts for our listeners. Thank you.